right. Well, I hope you have your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, I know we have some guests with us today, so you're jumping in with us. We're, we're midway through, not quite midway, but we're working through Paul's letter to Timothy. And just to set the backstory for you very quickly, uh, Paul had planted this church in Ephesus, and he loved these people, and he stayed with them for years, getting the church up and, and investing in the men and the women and teaching them how to walk with the Lord. And it was a healthy, vibrant church. But then Paul moved on, as he often did, to plant another church in a new city. And this church, years down the road, began to adopt some bad habits. And there began to be some concerning unhealth in the church. And so Paul sent his his young protege, Timothy, uh, to teach and correct and encourage the people. And so that's what we find today. And our passage this morning, as we look to 1 Timothy chapter 2... Our passage this morning is actually built on a premise that is wildly offensive, and I'll say it from the get-go. It didn't used to be offensive. Uh, It it used to be universally accepted, and yet in our culture in this moment, uh, this is the kind of thing, the premise that this passage is built on is the kind of thing that could get you fired from the public sphere. And yet the Apostle Paul here, he builds his argument on this premise, and he doesn't even apologize for the premise. He doesn't even acknowledge it. He doesn't give any qualifiers. And so here's the premise underneath our text this morning. Paul assumes that men and women are different. Which is not the kind of thing that you're really allowed to say anymore. And yet, Paul comes out with his instructions and he gives one set of instructions for the men. And he gives another set of instructions for the women. Because Paul believes that men and women are going to face different challenges. And therefore are going to need different encouragements. And so as we look to the text today, that's what we're going to find. We're going to find instructions for men and for women in the household of God. So to that end, would you look with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 8 to 10. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Starting in verse 8. I desire then... That in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so what we discover in this text is that, once again, the church in Ephesus had adopted some bad habits. They had adopted pride and anger and division and haughtiness, and these things were seeping into their corporate worship. So Timothy's assignment, therefore, was to identify these bad habits and to root them out. Because bad habits left unchecked are terribly dangerous. Right? We heard that a few weeks ago. Practice makes what? Permanent. Practice makes permanent. So a young church that makes peace with sin early on is well on its way to ruin and schism and disaster in the future. So that's what he's writing to here, to pull out these bad habits. And this morning, as we study this text, I would suggest to you that we're going to be reminded that there is nothing new under the sun. The temptations that men and women faced in Ephesus are not all that different from the temptations that men and women face here in 21st century Aurelia. So let's turn our attention now to these instructions for men, first of all, in the household of God. Instructions for men. 
We see those in verse 8. Let me read that again. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Essentially, this is one command with a qualifier. Paul is saying, I want the men to pray, but as they pray, I want them to let go of their sin and to stop fighting. And so we're going to consider it in that order. He starts with this. The men should pray. That's our first thing we need to see in the text. And before we go any further, I do want to clarify something, because some folks have read this and they've seen this as a prohibition against prayer from women. Um, And I want to just say, that's not what Paul's saying in this text. And we know that because when he writes to the Corinthians, he gives instructions for how the men ought to pray. So this isn't a prohibition for women praying. This is an address to the men in the way that they ought to pray. He's got some instructions for the ladies later, but this is for the men. And the men should pray. And I will say this. Now that we're seven weeks into our Life Together program, I can confess that one of my primary motivations for this new program was to help our men to learn how to pray together. Uh, By God's grace, we've got some some new Christians in our midst. We have some folks who are still relatively immature in their faith. And in talking with you, I knew that for many of you, praying out loud with others was a horrifying prospect. I know that for some of you, even just praying out loud for the meal at your dinner table was was a horrifying prospect. And so we wanted to address that. And we wanted to put you in a context where you could learn what it is to pray out loud with your brothers in Christ. Because if we're going to be used by the Lord to see salvation and transformation in this city, we can't content ourselves to remain as infants in prayer. We must grow. We must pray. The great preacher E.M. Bounds once said, The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He doesn't come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. So, Redeemer, let me ask you a question. Men, would we describe ourselves today as men of prayer? See, I look across this room and I see good men. I see men who tremble at the word of God. I see men who are committed to leading their families in the faith. I see men who are passionate about evangelism and reaching the lost. But are we yet men who are strong in prayer? Are we gripped by the conviction that no spiritual battle will ever be won without prayer? Are we gripped by the conviction that there is an enemy who wants to seek and to kill and to destroy our family, our church, our community? Do we truly believe that the most significant battle that we will ever fight is a battle that we must fight on our knees? Do we believe it? Let me ask, when was the last time, brothers, when was the last time that you prayed with your wife? When was the last time that you took the initiative in praying with your wife? That you said, you know what, tonight let's turn off the TV and let's pray for our kids, for our church, for our city. When's the last time, men, that we set our alarms a little bit earlier so that we could wake up before the rest of the family and we could lift them up to the Lord in prayer? When's the last time that our little ones walked in on Daddy praying for the family? 
When's the last time that we came together with our friends and we took the lead and we said, hey, you know what we should do? We should spend a little bit of time together in prayer. And why does that sound so terribly foreign to us? Are we strong in prayer? This wasn't foreign to the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read this. And they, that is these new believers, this fledgling church coming off the ground, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These brothers and sisters came together and they shared meals together and they talked about what they were learning and they prayed. What if we did that? Uh, Truly, what if we did that? as brothers and sisters in Christ? What if we got together and we shared meals, and rather than just talking about life, though there's room for that, what if we also talked about what God was teaching us? And then what if we stopped and we prayed together? How would our relationships change in this place? How would our passion change in this place? What might God do if that's who we were? Let's do it. Men, let's pray. Let's resolve to grow in this together. We have access to the throne room of heaven. Do we believe that? We're in a spiritual battle. Eternal souls are at stake. Do we believe that? The God of the universe has invited us to come to him to ask for the nations. We saw in our text last week, he desires that all would be saved. Do we believe that? Then let's come before him boldly and let us be men who are strong in prayer. The men should pray, Paul says. Amen, they should. Let's resolve to grow together. And second, as we approach the Lord in prayer, we learn the men should repent of their anger and quarreling. Look again at verse 8. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And at first glance, that almost looks like a prescription for our posture, right? Every prayer ought to be like this. But the Apostle Paul is writing to to brothers who are coming out of Judaism, and this is the common posture in Judaism for prayer. Hands outstretched, palms up to the Lord. But Paul here is telling them, you should be lifting up holy hands. His emphasis isn't on our posture, it's on our heart. One commentator notes, and this is the the consensus among commentators, the emphasis here is not on the posture of prayer, but on the hands being holy meaning that the conduct of the person praying should be acceptable and appropriate to God. So Paul says, hey, men in Ephesus, as you lift up your hands in prayer, lift up holy hands, brothers. If you remember a few weeks back, he was addressing the fact that there were some who were ignoring their conscience, meaning there were some who the the conscience alarm was going off and they knew that this was wrong and yet they were persisting in sin. And so then he listed Hymenaeus and Alexander, right? They've already been cast out of the church and you've got these brothers who are persisting in sin. And he's telling them, "We, we can't do that. We can't be the men who persist in sin while then lifting up our hands in prayer on Sunday morning. And he alludes back to Psalm 24 here to to highlight this hypocrisy of such prayers. In Psalm 24, we read, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, brothers, and I would say, brothers, if you're still clinging to sin, now listen, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, so there's not a single sinless man in this room, of course. But if you have made peace with sin and you're holding tight to it, 
and you love it, and you cherish it, and you won't let it go, then what are you doing lifting up those hands and making these pretentious prayers before the church? Lift up holy hands if you're going to lift up your hands in prayer. If you've made peace with sin, if you've rejected God's rule in your life, if Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, then what confidence do you have to approach His throne? And that sounds like a, a hard, jaded question, but that's a biblical question. Psalm 66, 18, for example, says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I was holding tight to my sin, the Lord would not have listened. You say, that's a hard word. I'm glad that's just the Old Testament. Well, then Jesus says in the New Testament, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, forgive, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's a terrifying verse, isn't it? Jesus is saying, if, if you're standing up to pray, but you're mad at Steve because Steve did something to you, and you're not going to let go of that anger, you're just, you're just furious at Steve. Well, if you won't forgive Steve, then there's no forgiveness for you. That's a horrifying verse. Do we believe that? Apparently, the men in Ephesus did not. And so Paul's reminding them that unforgiveness is deadly serious. Anger, a quarrelsome spirit. Those are deadly serious, brothers. He warns them, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I'm sure there were some angry women in Ephesus, but they were the exception, not the rule. He's speaking to the men here, and he's saying, men, you've got an anger problem. That sin was and continues to be a particular temptation for men. Coming to church angry. Coming to church ready for a fight. Lifting up their prayers to God while simultaneously holding on to bitterness and resentment. They had an anger problem. They brought their anger with them to worship, and God hated it. God hated it. As one commentator notes, in our prayers, we leave our differences behind us. Now, I must confess, over the last year and a half, I have been deeply unsettled, and quite frankly, I've been disillusioned by the anger and that contentious spirit that so quickly made its way into the Canadian church. We're alarmed by this, are we not? We ought to be. How did that happen? This text leaves me wondering, how many prayers have been prayed in vain across our province this last year? Truly. How many quarrelsome, divisive, angry men have recited long, cantankerous prayers from the pulpits with the delusion that that kind of prayer is fit for the Prince of Peace? Men of Redeemer, if you're carrying a chip on your shoulder, if you're harboring a grudge, if you're making a habit of coming to church with a snarl on your face and a bone to pick, you need to know your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. That's the truth. That is the biblical truth. Bouncing off the ceiling. So pray. But let go of the anger and the quarreling. Lift up holy hands to the Lord. Let this be the place where we come and we leave the anger at the door. We repent of it. We resolve to turn. And we come together in unity. And we pray for people that we disagree with. And we pray with people who have wronged us. And we pray for people who are fundamentally opposed to us. It doesn't matter. We pray. Because the anger is gone. We left that. We left that behind. We're not quarrelsome. We're quick to forgive. We pray. And brothers, 
If that's you, and you're, and you're the one, and you're, you know, your prayers are the ones that have been bouncing off the ceiling. Can I just say a word to you? There is forgiveness. There's forgiveness for the angry, quarrelsome brother. Repent. Repent and believe that Jesus bled and died for the sins of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. Jesus bore in his body the curse for the quarrelsome. There is freedom. And, and I do want to say this because maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I can't, I don't know what to do. I'm just an angry man. I always have been. My dad was an angry man. His dad was an angry man. I'm just an angry man. Can I just say that's a lie from the devil. You do not need to be an angry man. There is freedom for the angry man. There is forgiveness for the angry man. There is a new way for the angry man. As we pray for the little ones in this church, let's also pray that dads can let go of the sin of anger and not pass it on to their little ones. Jesus bled and died to pay the price. We can let it go. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So men... Let's resolve to stop fighting about disputable matters. Let's resolve to stop quarreling about things that, quite frankly, most of us don't even understand. Let's resolve to lay down our swords and let go of our grudges. Let's ask for forgiveness. Let's extend that forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Or else we will find ourselves in this place praying in vain. That's Paul's message for the men in the church. But then he turns now to speak to the women in the church. And so women, here are instructions for women in the household of God. We find those in verses 9 to 10. Paul writes, Likewise also, that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So while the men in Ephesus were polluting their worship with anger and schism, the women in Ephesus were polluting their worship with pride and vanity. And the first instruction we find here is that the women should dress modestly. And if I could just lament for a moment, somehow, at least in the Christian circles I run in, Modesty has become a swear word. And I don't know when that happened, but it has happened. If the argument, if I am understanding it correctly, the argument is that if we emphasize modesty, what we're actually saying is that women's bodies are dangerous. Something to be hidden from men. Because men aren't able to control their own lust. And if that's what we're railing against when we talk about modesty culture, then amen, right? That's not helpful. No, women should not be ashamed of their bodies. Yes, men should show self-control. And they're responsible for their actions. Yes, of course, all of that is true. Yes, but... But so often it feels like that line of argument goes a step further and calls us to dismiss the idea of modesty outright. And that's unhelpful and that's unbiblical because Paul explicitly says right here, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Which means that modesty is not just some cultural carryover from the I kissed dating goodbye 90s. It's a biblical principle that we find right here and we're called to value it. And so let's look closely at this passage and let's think carefully about what this means. 
For starters, I do want you to notice that Paul calls the women to adorn themselves. And that's not insignificant. Calls them to adorn themselves, not to hide themselves. If Paul believed that, that women were this you know, magnet for evil, then he would call them to hide their bodies, as is the case, by the way, with, with most Eastern religions. But he doesn't do that. He calls them to adorn themselves, but to adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty. Because there is a way to present yourself as a woman that brings glory to God. But there's also a way to present yourself as a woman that brings glory to yourself. And we all instinctively know this is true. In the city of Ephesus, it manifested itself in a particular way. If you look closely at the text, he says, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So commentator William Mounts, he's helpful here helping us to picture what was happening in this church in Ephesus. He says, The clothing that Paul is considering is not slightly expensive, but extravagantly expensive, as suggested by the use of gold jewelry. A.H.M. Jones says, Clothing could cost as much as 7,000 denarii, which equaled more than 19 years' wages for an average day laborer. So apparently, women were coming into church dressed in these extravagantly expensive outfits. They were getting dressed for church with a motive of impressing others, treating the corporate worship like it was some kind of beauty pageant. So let's hear that. And women, hear that. If you are picking your outfits on Sunday morning with the intention of flaunting your wealth or flaunting your beauty or flaunting your weight loss, then this warning is, in fact, for you. And, of course, while there are undoubtedly some men who struggle with modesty, just as there are some women who struggle with anger, this temptation is particular for women. John Stott summarizes, The general impression is clear that women are to be discreet and modest in their dress and not to wear any garment which is deliberately suggestive or seductive. This establishes a universal principle. And here's the unique challenge. Thinking about modesty in this culture as opposed to this culture is a difficult issue because modesty is a matter of the heart. It's not a rubric that we can impose on one another. So by way of example, what was immodest in Ephesus when Paul wrote to Timothy was not considered immodest by our grandparents. And what was considered immodest by our grandparents when they were in their 30s is not considered immodest to us today. And so how do we engage with this? What do we do? I want to think very practically about this. And I'm mindful of the fact that I'm walking into a minefield here. But I am a dad with two daughters, and I'm a pastor of a church that's 60% women, and so I feel like I must walk into this minefield. And please pray that I do not lose a leg. But I would suggest two guiding principles that should shape the way that we think and talk about modesty here as a people. First, let's make sure we understand that modesty is primarily a heart issue. And here's the thing. Because it's a heart issue, we need to walk in humility because there's nobody in this room who has the ability to see the heart. It's a heart issue. That means, as a rule... We should always err on the side of assuming the best in each other. Right? Let that be our disposition. Let's be practical. That means older women, 
there might be times when you will need to actively resist the urge to assume the motives of a young woman as she walks into church dressed in an outfit that you would not have worn when you were her age. We're going to have to actively resist that urge to try and assess somebody else's heart. You can't do it. Our disposition should be humility. We should err on the side of grace. The necklace that appears to you to be flaunting wealth might be an heirloom from a deceased grandmother. You just don't know. Okay, so let's operate with humility. Let's assume the best. That's the first principle. But second, while modesty is primarily a heart issue, we have to acknowledge that it is necessarily a communal issue. Meaning, modesty is not even a factor when we're at home alone, is it? You know, when you're getting dressed to go do the dishes in the kitchen, you're not thinking like, is this modest, is this not? Right? Because you're by yourself in the kitchen. Modesty only comes in as a factor when you are in community. Therefore, it is possible that someone in the community might be affected by the way that you dress in a way that you didn't anticipate. Now, they need to conduct themselves with humility. They need to refrain from judging your heart. They need to discern whether or not it's even worth speaking to you. But let's say that they do speak to you. And you know what? We'll go a step further. Let's say they speak to you and they're clumsy about it because we're all really clumsy. So they don't even handle it very well, but they come and they speak to you. Here's the second principle. We need to listen with humility. If an older woman approaches you and suggests awkwardly that your outfit is flaunting something that you're not intending to flaunt, as awkward as that conversation might be, strive to hear that with humility. Perhaps even though your heart is in the right place, your outfit is communicating a message that you didn't anticipate. Now, the world would respond in that moment unequivocally with a, hey, mind your own business. I can dress however I want. Right? That is, that's the worldly response. But as a Christian, we need to respond differently. Perhaps just as we think this through, why don't we contrast this issue with another issue that involves the conscience? The church in Rome, for example, the early church, they really struggled with the issue of food. Some people believed they needed to continue to observe the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law, and their conscience wouldn't let them eat those things. Others, including the Apostle Paul, understood that they were free to eat whatever they want, that what goes into us doesn't make us unclean. So the Apostle Paul writes to this church that's got a really live, awkward issue. And what does he say? Does he say to the people who've got a strong conscience, does he say, hey, you know what? I want you to eat that slice of ham right in front of their face. That'll teach them. And I want you to say, it's clean, as you take another bite. No, he doesn't say that at all. He writes this. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, I would add, or dress, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. You hear that? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the unity and the upbuilding of the church, the Apostle Paul would eat an old sock. He would. He would forego eating food that he is free to eat for the rest of his life just so that he could have peace in the church, just so that he could, he could not offend the conscience of his brothers and his sisters over here, even though their conscience on this issue is wrong. It's weak. Yet still, Paul's going to let all this go for the sake of their conscience because he doesn't want to lead them to stumble. 
Therefore, as we apply that principle, if someone comes to you and they awkwardly say, you know, I think this outfit might lead others to stumble. The Christian response should not be, but God made my body and there's nothing wrong with it. Even though, by the way, that is exactly true. And the Christian response should not be, I am not responsible for weak men and their lust. Even though, that's also true. But the Christian response should be, my heart was not in the wrong place when I picked this out. I picked this out with a good conscience. Nevertheless, if you think this outfit is leading someone to stumble, I will happily wear something else. And that will go against every fiber of your being, I would imagine. And yet that should be our disposition towards one another in this place. It calls us to swim against the stream of the contemporary culture and to embrace modesty. And lastly, Paul gives us one final instruction for women, which is this. The women should prioritize inner beauty. And that truly is the overarching thrust of Paul's instructions to the women. Look again. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And if you look closely at what Paul is prescribing, you see modesty, self-control, good works. Which suggests to me that Paul's purpose here is not to instate a dress code in Ephesus. Hear that? Paul's purpose is not to instate a dress code. You know, skirts beyond the fingertips, two finger width, you know, all those things that we're so inclined to do. That's not what Paul is doing here. That's not his purpose, but to reorient the women in the church to prioritize a different kind of beauty. As one commentator notes, therefore, here Paul is not requesting the total absence of external beauty, but a priority placed on the internal. So we've already discussed modesty. modesty. Let's focus on the other two that he highlights here. Self-control, what does he mean? Well, if you're familiar with your New Testament, you know self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians. And it applies to all of the ways that we conduct ourselves. But one principle that we see highlighted in this letter is the way that we control our tongue. So one of the issues that manifested itself in Ephesus was that there were some women in the church who were making a habit of gossiping and slandering. And so they had a lot of time on their hands, and they were using that time to spread rumors and to stir up division. And, and he says, hey, you've got you to put that to rest. Which means that one of the ways that we can adorn ourselves with self-control is we can control our tongues. And we can use our tongues for the upbuilding of the people of God and not for slandering and tearing people down. Right? Gossip, we put gossip aside, and that's a beautiful thing for us as Christians. But he also calls them to adorn themselves with good works. And in this context, again, he addresses the church and the situation. There are widows in the church. There are real situations of need. There are people who have kind of neglected caring for their parents. And so when we think through good works in the context of Ephesus, it seems that Paul is saying that a beautiful Christian woman is one who honors her parents, who serves those who are in need, who studies the Word diligently, who is clearly growing in holiness day by day. A beautiful Christian woman is one who is comfortable in her own skin, not because of her workout regime or her designer clothes, but because she knows who she belongs to and she lives a life of service to Him every day. 
That seems to be what Paul is commending in this passage. And lest we assume that this is only for, for women in Ephesus, Peter says the same thing when he writes to Christians inside of Rome. He says this, Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Mothers and fathers and mentors, the world is telling our young women to pursue an external beauty, and they're pushing them to the brink of exhaustion, and it's doing a lot of harm to our young women. Let's make sure that we set a different example in here. Amen? Let's make sure that we set a different example in here. Amen? All right. Three people are with me. (laughs) Which is concerning. As a father of two daughters, can I just make a personal plea to the women in this church in particular? For every one conversation that my daughters, that little cruise overhears about diet and the new exercise regime and beauty... Can, can they overhear 99 conversations about holiness and grace and mercy? Can that be a thing that happens here in this place, please? Our culture is a disaster right now for young women. And I can't imagine what it would be like as a young woman growing up in this world as they're having all of these unrealistic ideas of beauty imposed on them and crushing them on a daily basis. Please don't let them feel that in here. Amen. Amen. Let that not be what we value. Let me talk to the the young men. Young men, boys, looking for a wife, let us be the men who prioritize real beauty. Let that be what we're about. Let us be the, the men who value a young woman who honors her parents and and is disciplined in growing in holiness and guards her tongue and loves the Lord and puts way more of her priority on growing in this relationship than on trying to fit into the new genes that are out. Let us change the way that we think about beauty in this place for the sake of our young women. In conclusion, moms and dads, and mentors, and friends, and brothers, and sisters in Christ. We do a disservice to people when we pretend that gender is just some kind of social construct that's not real. God made men, and he made women in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And they are equal in worth and dignity. They are wonderfully and gloriously different. Both of those are true. They possess different strengths, They possess different weaknesses. They're susceptible to different temptations. They require different support. And to pretend otherwise will win you applause in the culture, but it will render you unhelpful as you try to come alongside the young people in our midst. Maybe it's just me, but I actually find it, while intimidating, remarkably refreshing to return week after week to a text that isn't shaped in any way by the cultural do's and don'ts of our society right now. If I could simply preach on whatever I want, if I could just have a blank slate, can I confess, I would have never selected this. I wouldn't have. have. It wouldn't have sprung into my mind at all, I promise. And yet, we need to hear 
all of this in a culture full of angry men who are trying to dominate one another with their words in every avenue. I'm a sports fan. Even sports, right? It's all about the angry soundbite. It's all about the assertion of will. In a culture full of angry, quarrelsome men, let us resolve to be men of prayer who let our anger go. That's going to say something to our culture. In a culture full of promiscuity and objectification and unattainable, unrealistic, filtered standards, let us be women who are beautiful in character and conduct. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a breath of fresh air? The household of God should be a place. It should be the community where we can escape from the smog of the culture for just a moment and breathe deeply of God's good plan and design. And then having caught our breath, we're sent back into the world to be salt and light and to speak hope and to point people to Christ and to show them that there is freedom and that there's an alternative to these ridiculous standards that have been placed upon us. Men who are strong in prayer. Women who are beautiful in conduct. This is who God has made us to be. This is who He has saved us to be. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And to that end, let's ask the Lord for His help. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we thank you that you are our Father. We may have bad examples from our earthly fathers. We may have learned things that are not only unhelpful, but things that have wounded us and have shaped us from our earthly fathers. And yet here we can come to you and say, you are our heavenly Father. And you have always and only set for us the right example. And you always and only give us the counsel that leads to life. And you always and only seek out what is best for the eternal good of your people. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so we can come to you with confidence, God, and we can say, lead us. Would you lead us? We don't know how to be men. We don't have a clue. God, we've, we've learned so many backwards things, and now it feels like as a culture we're swinging hard into another ditch. And God, it just feels like, who can do this? We've seen so many horrible examples, and yet we look to the example of Christ the manliest man who ever lived, who held the little ones in his arms and blessed them, who came alongside the weak and the poor and the destitute, who taught us to turn the other cheek, who, who knew when to access that righteous anger and when to turn it off. Who of us here can say that we, we are capable of any of that? Lord, none of us. Make us godly men. And Lord, that's only going to happen as we become men of prayer. So teach us to pray. I ask... God, we can't just flip a switch. We need the power of your spirit working in us. So help us. And God, I pray for our women. Lord, I pray for them. First of all, Lord, I just confess I'm, I'm clumsy. If I said anything clumsy with my words, let it fall to the floor. But let your word remain. Lord, this is a good word for women. Lord, I just pray that you would bring great release. Particularly, Lord, I pray for women who have maybe bought into the lie that who they are and, and how valuable they are is all determined by their waist size. And it's just a lie from the pit of hell. And God, I pray against it. 
God, I pray that you would help our women as they seek to grow in godliness and as they look around them and and they're surrounded by women who spend all of their time focusing on external beauty. I pray, God, that they wouldn't be discouraged but that they would lean into you, that they would give their lives to growing in internal beauty because all that is external fades away. Lord, it's true. We waste away and one day we'll come before you and what will matter is not how beautiful we were on the outside, but how beautiful we are on the inside. And that is a work that you can do by your spirit, and we pray that you would do it. Lord, I pray that we would look to the example that was set for us by our sweet sister Emma, who died the most beautiful woman I've ever known. What a gift she is to us. What a gift her example will continue to be for us. Lord, I pray for a a church full of Emma Morrison's who surrender themselves to you and grow in godliness day by day. What a beautiful thing that would be. Lord, what a witness that would be to our culture. And I pray that we would be men who would value that. So Lord, I pray against all of the ways that we undermine that. Things like addictions to pornography that completely undermines what you would have us teach to young women. Lord, I I pray that you would free fathers from the addiction to pornography that so scar and distort our young women and teach them all kinds of horrible things about what matters in women. God, I pray that you would, you would get right to the root, cut out that sin, and bring healing in this place. Lord, so we ask for all of these things, and we ask them knowing that we can't do any of it in our own strength, but we ask for the help of your Spirit. God, help. And we thank you, God. You tell us that sometimes we have not because we ask not. We want to have, and so we ask. And Lord, I think of the 50 little boys and girls that are learning the gospel in the rooms next door. God, I pray that we would set a good example for them. Oh, Lord, help. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? Not us. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your strength. Lord, help. Take these lives and let them be consecrated, made holy for you. We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 I'm going to pray for you and dismiss you. Before I do, uh, just a practical note. If you're here and you feel like, boy, I need to grow, I know what is often the case is that we sit and we hear and we say, boy, I should change in this regard. I should do something. And then we hop into the car and then something happens and it's just gone. And so I would just say this. If you're here and you're a young woman and you feel like, I need help in this, I don't even know how to think about this. I'd encourage you to ask for help. Just turn to an older woman in the congregation and say, can you pray for me in this? Or can you mentor me in this or support me in this? And, And men, if you're here today and you would say, I am an angry man. I know that it's true. I've always been an angry man. I can't seem to break out of this. Rather than hopping in your car and forgetting about that, this would be a great time for you to turn to another brother in Christ and say, I need help. I don't don't know how to control my temper. I don't know how to control my tongue. And I don't want to be this husband, this dad, this man anymore. Ask for help and ask for someone to pray with you. And uh, this isn't the community where we come together and then we, you know, take a lashing and then we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and be better. That's That's not how we operate as Christians. This is the place where we come and we look to Jesus and we remember, wow, I am not Jesus. And we fall on our knees and we ask for help and humility. That's what it is to follow Christ. And so I would just encourage you today, if that's you, just don't let that pass you by. Do something. Right? What a courageous thing to do something. To change by the the grace of God for His glory. 
So I'm going to pray for us now, and I would just encourage you to, to act if he's calling you to act. So let's pray. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift up the light of his countenance to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. You are dismissed.